Our first scripture this morning is Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Psalm 34, verses 4 and 5. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, For to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil veil covers their hearts. But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Dan Rather once conducted an interview with Mother Teresa, and he asked, When you pray to God, what do you say? To which she answered, I don't say anything. I just listen. Here is seasoned, award-winning investigative reporter thrown off for a moment. So he follows up. So when you pray to God, what does he say to you? He's quiet for a minute and says, well, he doesn't say anything. I just listen. Oh, he listens. Another awkward moment. Followed up by Mother Teresa when she says, and if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. In his book, Opening to God, Father Thomas Green tells a story of a simple laborer named Jimmy who stops by the neighborhood church on his way home from work every day. He goes and sits back at the quiet, uh, in, the, in the back of the sanctuary by himself for a few moments. The priest notices him visiting every day and one day asks him, what is it that you do? And he says, well, I just sit there, Father, nothing much. I say, Jesus? It's Jimmy. And then Jesus says, Jesus, uh, not Jimmy, it's me, Jesus. And we're just happy spending some time together. You know, these scenes highlight how the essence of prayer is not so much about what we do as much as what God does with us and in us. Prayer is not simply a request for divine favor. Prayer is not at its core some form of spiritual work that we have to grind out. 
at its essence, it's simply being with God. It's simply being in relationship with God. And in these first three uh, stages of the prayer practice series we've been walking through this month, we talked about prayer as talking to God, using pre-written prayers and psalms, prayer as praying with God, with our requests and our needs, but also praying as listening to God. And today we come to this final stage of prayer as being with God, listening to God. In this prayer, it's known as wordless communion, and it's come to be known as contemplative prayer. So there's, we're going to walk through this in three stages, the dimensions of contemplative prayer, the challenges of contemplative prayer, and the power of it. So we talk about this term, contemplative prayer. What exactly is contemplative prayer? prayer. It comes from the word contemplation. Etymologically, it comes from the Latin word contemplatio, which is based on three words assembled together, con, templa, and teo. Con means with. Templa, in Roman times, was understood as the place in the heavens where God dwelled. And then the last part, teo, is simply a grammatical Uh, suffix that turns another part of speech into a verb or an action. So, contemplatio is the action of being with God. It's a state of awareness, of abiding with God. Or more literally, as I like to say it, contemplatio is withing where God is. Withing where God is. Contemplation has been understood differently throughout you know, Christian history, but there are three basic dimensions to contemplative prayer. There's looking, yielding, and resting. Looking, yielding, and resting. So looking, and Marjorie has already suggested it to us, you know, looking at God, looking at us in love. It's this kind of looking. Looking at God, looking at us in love. When we heard 2 Corinthians 3.18 read, Paul writes to the Corinthian church saying this phrase, we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. Unveiled faces suggest this image of a bride unveiled in intimacy with her husband. It also harkens back to the Exodus uh, text where Moses meets with God. The Greek word here for for contemplate comes from uh, the word contemplate comes from the Greek word katorizo, which means to gaze upon, to direct your inner gaze towards whatever the object is. Another name for contemplative prayer is beholding prayer. Here, Paul is describing beholding God's glory. So, what is it we're con- contemplating? The glory of God. So, what's glory? Glory is not to be understood in our modern sense of fame and, and celebrity status. Glory here is God's presence and beauty. Glory describes the eminence of all the characteristics that make up God. God is good. God is love. God is hope. God is just. God is peace. And on and on. And for God to be God, and supremely so, because he wouldn't be God if he wasn't supreme, then all of these qualities are to be embodied in in the nature of God that is incomparable to any other demonstrations of goodness, of love, of hope, of justice, and peace, and so on. 
So glory is this term that encapsulates the beauty of all these qualities that exist in God. So another Andrew definition is glory is the godness of God. Glory is the godness of God. So to contemplate God's glory is to sit and look at God's beauty and goodness and love and justice and hope pouring out towards you. And while all created things in, you know, in the universe might remind us of goodness, might remind us of justice or peace or love, they are just mere reflections of the fullness of all of these qualities that are found in the nature of God. God is a source upon whom we can behold all these things. But how do we gaze upon an invisible God? Bonaventure was a medieval intellectual monk, tells us that there are three eyes. There's the eyes of the body, you know, the things in your head that see the physical world around us. Then there's the eyes of the mind, which helps us perceive ideas and concepts and how we negotiate with the world. And then there's the eyes of the heart, and that's the place where we begin to see God. This is, and St. Theophan the recluse, another saint, put it this way. To pray is to descend with the mind into the heart from here to here and there, there to stand before the face of the Lord, ever-present, all-seeing within you. This is the most basic aspect of contemplation. It's giving our loving attention towards God the Father and on God's love and compassion that's, and goodwill that's pouring out towards us in Christ and by the Spirit of God. Looking at God, looking at us in love, which leads to yielding to God's love. See, there's two kinds of prayer. First is how we often approach God. We labor in prayer with God to change what is in our lives and in our world. We say, this world is broken. We sang about it this morning. There's things that look like it's a disaster, but we can pray and ask God to change those situations. But there's a different kind of prayer that where we are laboring in prayer, not to change what is, but to accept what is. Not to change what is, but to accept what is. We see this example in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He starts by saying, Father, take this cup from me. He wants to change what is. But what does he end with? Yet not my will, but yours be done. The second half is accepting Prayer is accepting what is. See, in contemplation, we find ourselves yielding our plans, yielding our outcomes, and surrendering our wills to God's will. And this is the heart of contemplation, contemplative prayer. In contemplation, we say, God, I'm here, just like Jimmy said, I'm here, but I'm yours. This is not coercive submission to a someone wielding their power over you. It's simply surrendering to perfect love, God's love for you, which leads us to the third dimension of resting in God's love, looking, yielding, and resting. You know, asking, even when we're asking God in prayer or in intercession, it often feels like work, right? Because you have to think of things, and you have to keep uh, grinding it out. We are laboring with God in prayer. We're asking God for more of his kingdom to come into our lives and into our world. But for, it's for that reason that Orthodox Jews actually forbid 
intercessory prayer on the Sabbath. They do not pray for needs and petitions and intercession for others on the Sabbath because contemplative prayer is intended to feel less like work and more like rest. It's different from the first three stages of talking to, talking with, and listening to God. It's less what we do in prayer and more what God does in us and with us as we rest in his love. And when we do so, it's the medium by which we experience the fullness of God's love in Christ. So this is the dimension that Paul describes in his prayers for the Ephesian church, where he says, uh, Ephesians 3.16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being eyes of the heart, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Resting in God's love. That's what Paul is describing. Saints have called this kind of resting as God's loving light. St. Teresa of Avia called this type of prayer silent love. And Augustine called it prayer, whole prayer, is nothing but love. You want to know God's love? Simply be with God. See, in our modern world, many of us are in a constant state of chronic fatigue from our performance-oriented culture. And this type of prayer of resting in and receiving our core identity as daughters and sons of the living God and then offering it back to God in love, in worship. This is the kind of lifeline that God wired for us to depend on. Back to 2 Corinthians 3. Reminds us that contemplation isn't just a lifeline or a thing that we turn to in crisis, something for us to enjoy, but it's the heart of transformation by God. You want to be changed by God? You look to God. And it's this process by which we are formed to be made in the likeness of Christ. See, the point of practicing all of these practices in the way of Jesus, whether it's Sabbath or prayer or fasting or generosity or hospitality or uh, simplicity and solitude, all these practices, they're not just meant to be check marks for your spiritual status. These are all practices intended to help us move, as we've been talking about, from from decreasing anxiety in our life to increasing yielded trust in God. Contemplative prayer, being with God, is one of the core Uh, ways that this takes place in our life. Contemplation. The spiritual writer Hui Hui Tan says this, a Singaporean writer, says, you are what your mind looks at. You are what you contemplate. The question for us is, what do we contemplate? Where do we spend hours of our day looking to? Is it the news? especially political news, then we become 
often angry, politicized, radicalized, or depressed and frustrated. We spend hours of a day contemplating our Instagram feeds and social media, and we become angry, anxious, emotional, insecure. We spend hours contemplating overtly sexual, overly sexualized programming. We become lustful, addictive, objectifying of others. We spend hours contemplating the stock market. Then we become greedy and anxious. We become whatever it is that we gaze upon. To become like Jesus, we are to gaze upon Jesus. We do that through reading scripture, especially the gospels, but we also do it through prayer, where we gaze upon Jesus, looking at us in love. We gaze upon Jesus with the eyes of our hearts. And cont contemplating God in the person of Jesus Christ is what will lead us to our ultimate transformation, to be pe being people of love in Christ. So, there's the three dimensions. So quickly, we're going to walk through three challenges to contemplation. From, you know, yielding, resting, and uh, looking, yielding, and resting. Now there's three challenges. Distractions, hurry, and fear. You know, we're constantly bombarded by distractions. Our shopping lists, our to-do lists, our calendar notifications, we're replaying conversations that we had earlier in the day that we want to redo. And to counter those distractions, what do we do when we want to contemplate God? Just don't give them a second thought, especially in those moments of saying, I want to be with you, God. Just recenter your thoughts with God. Thomas Keating, in his book, Open Mind, Open Heart, says this. If your mind gets distracted a thousand times in ten minutes of prayer... That's a thousand chances to come back to God. You get distracted a thousand times, that's a thousand times you get to return back to God. That's all you have to do, return. Then there's hurry. I find this is hard for me. <laughs> to be with God in this way, you must, as Dallas Willard says, ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your life. Henry Nouwen, another spiritual writer, calls contemplation as wasting time on God. Wasting time on God. Now, this doesn't mean that it's a waste of time to be with God. But in our productivity-obsessed, outcome-driven culture, to give God time and resting in his presence seems like a wasteful activity. It's prodigal, using the term of the prodigal son story. In the Gospels. It's extravagantly wasteful. John's Gospel of, uh, also tells of Mary pouring out this expensive perfume to anoint Jesus' feet. That's wasteful in the eyes of most. But what we get out of contemplative prayer isn't different outcomes in our life. What we get is God. So don't hurry past God. Third challenge is fear, our fears. See, whatever we have buried deep within our psyche, we're unwilling to address, those things are going to come up in contemplative prayer before 
the presence of a holy and loving God. Maybe that's fear is our recognizing our lack of desire for God. Maybe it's recognizing our misplaced loves, our hatred, our anxiety, our envy, our insecurity, our jealousy, our hurt, our unforgiveness, our regrets, all those things that are buried down that we distract ourselves with, we try not to deal with the consequences of them, all those come up to the surface in the presence of the God of love. And as we pray, we become aware of all the ways that we use distraction and rushing through life and noise and people. We even use good things like family activities, children's activities, advancing your career and school. We use all those things to run from the pain that's buried in our hearts. And we carry that pain around with us constantly and it's leaking out of us in unhealthy ways. One of our elders, Kurt Thompson, I love his statement. He says, pay attention to what you pay attention to. And in this instance, when applying to our fears, I would say, pay attention to what you're trying really hard not to pay attention to in your life. Because that's often where God wants to do God's incredible work. You know, as a general rule, how you are outside of prayer is how you will be inside of prayer. If you're stressed, if you're hurried, if you're distracted by your phone and your notifications, then that's going to spill over into your prayer life. We're invited by God to slow ourselves down to what Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama calls the speed of love. Slow yourself down the speed of love. God's love. You know, one way to think about following Jesus in our modern era is to intentionally slow down your life to pray. You know, I rely on my Google Maps, Google, no, Google Calendar, I rely on Google Maps too, but a Google Calendar to arrange my life. So now what I've done is I've Actually, to help myself with this so I don't keep moving on and distracting myself, I've actually scheduled in 15 minutes twice a day, one-on-one with JC. That's not Julia Chung, it's Jesus Christ. Although it could be (laughs) Julia Chung. So it pops up so I can remember. I can be doing something else at the time, but when the notification comes, then I simply reset. And I say, prayer, maybe it's a simple prayer, like Maranatha, even so come, Lord. Or maybe it's a statement. I just go, okay, whatever. I'm in the middle of my sermon. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner saved by grace. Or God is now here. Moments in the day to help us remember that life is about being with God. And that's how we get, how, how we are, find nourishment, and remain in God's love, but how we are also transformed and to begin to see our world differently. This is the power of contemplative prayer. It's not just ruminating over theological propositions. It's, not just, it's, it's this act of opening yourself up to this reality, and especially this reality of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. 
See, contemplation, contemplative prayer isn't just going off to la-la land with God, or to put it more crudely, spiritual masturbation, to make ourselves feel good. Oh, yes, I'm in God's presence. There's substantial power in pondering and in contemplation. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is described as one who pondered. We're told when the shepherds hear, uh, hear from the angels in the fields that they run to find Mary and Joseph and Jesus and they tell her, tell them what the angels told them. And we're told she pondered these things in her heart. At the other end of Jesus' life, we find her also pondering at the foot of the cross with the impending painful departure of her son, crucified, suffering before her eyes. You know, in ancient times, there were two kinds of pondering, the Greek pondering and Hebrew pondering. The Greek thinkers believed that an unexamined life is not a worth, life worth living. So for them, pondering was to think through something, anything, everything, through all of its depth and all of its implications. Rodin's sculpture, The Thinker, depicts this kind of thinking, intensely reflecting on something, mulling it over, and considering all of its angles. That's the Greek kind of pondering. But for Hebrew minds, pondering offered a different kind of existential connotation. Ronald Rollheiser says it this way, in this kind of pondering, it's to hold, carry, and transform tension so as not to give it back in kind, knowing that whatever energies we do not transform, we will transmit. Holding tension in a way that if we don't transform, then they will be transmitted through us. We see it in John, this kind of pondering in John chapter 19, verse 26, when Mary and John are standing before the cross. It says, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here's your son, here is your mother. Standing under the cross. It's a bit of a mystical image. We often skip over that phrase. What is Mary doing as she stands under the cross? We're not told that she speaks doesn't try and stop the crucifixion. She doesn't protest the injustice of Jesus' case. She doesn't plead his innocence. She's mute. She's essentially passive, so it seems. She's not overtly doing anything. But at a deeper level, she, she's, she's doing that all, all that she can be done by standing at the foot of the cross. She's holding and carrying this tension, but she's standing in strength, refusing to give back in kind and resisting in a deep way what is going on before her eyes. The artists have often portrayed Mary as prostrate at the cross, you know, as this wounded mother grieving the cruel punishment and suffering of her son. But that doesn't seem to honor what the Apostle John describes as she stands before Jesus. Prostration is a, depicts weakness and collapse and resignation. But in the Gospels, we find that 
standing is a sign of strength. She was in essence saying, as Rollheiser puts it here, today, I can't stop this crucifixion. Nobody can. Sometimes darkness will have its hour. But I can stop some of the hatred, bitterness, jealousy, and heartlessness caused by it. By refusing to give back in kind. By transforming negativity rather than retransmitting it. By swallowing hard in silence and eating the bitterness rather than giving it back in kind. That's the power of contemplation. In her silence and in her standing, she is contemplating not just Jesus, her son, uh, unjustly crucified on the cross, but she's also contemplating Jesus, God's son. He was radiating all that is antithetical to crucifixion in that moment. Gentleness, understanding, forgiveness, peace, light, and courage. You know, sometimes our frustration towards injustice and the broken things of our world does demand acts of justice as a response. That is certainly appropriate and good and healthy, all a reflection of God's heart of love. But there are times when things have gone too far and darkness does seem to have its way, and all we can do is stand under the cross and help absorb that bitterness by refusing to give in to its energy. And this response isn't the same as despair. It's not resignation or giving up. It's moving towards the only source of light, that exi- of, of love and of faith that exists in the midst of darkness and hatred. And that source is the glory of God. You know, Rainer Maria Rilke writes this, Do not be afraid to suffer. Give the heaviness back to the weight of the earth. Mountains are heavy. Seas are heavy. Standing before God in this tension is not resignation. It's not weakness. But it's a genuine and rare strength that only can come from being in the presence of the living God of love. That's what it means. That's what it means to ponder and to contemplate as Mary did in the Hebrew sense. It's holding this tension of our world in the presence of the almighty living God of love. We find that Mary, she did not hurry on from that scene. She was not distracted by the brutality and the suffering of her human son before her eyes. She did not cower in fear before the crowds and the empire that put him there. She beheld. She pondered. She contemplated the glory of God revealed in Jesus. And as a result, was transformed a bit more into the likeness of Christ. She looked upon God, looking at her in love. She yielded to God's will, and she rested in God's loving presence in the face of seeming horror and tragedy and destruction, yet allowing none of those things to change her. This is the invitation 
for each one of us in being with God in prayer. May you hear this gracious invitation from God, the God of love today and be transformed further into that love of God.